You are listening to National Security Law Today. The African continent's second largest country, Sudan, is a secular country with a primarily Muslim population, and it's recently experienced a coup. It's the second upset of its ruling structure in less than 36 months. Its next-door neighbor, Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country, is in the throes of an all-out civil war. Last week, we brought you up to speed on Ethiopia and its importance to global and U.S. national security. To the north and west of Ethiopia, though, touching on Ethiopia's historic Amhara region, is Sudan. Sudan is on the Red Sea and depends upon oil production to sustain its economy. I'm Elisa, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And I'm Yvette. Sudan's capital, Khartoum, sits at the intersection of the White and Blue Niles, Africa's major irrigation and shipping channel. When South Sudan seceded from Sudan and faced a crisis from the loss of much of its oil areas, the pipeline revenues sank. We're here today to walk through our series on the Horn of Africa, its strategic importance to global security, and why a stable Sudan is good for the United States. Our guest today is Darren Johnson. Darren Johnson is a professor of law at Howard University School of Law, where I would point out the vice president went. And there he teaches courses in international law and national security law. Prior to joining Howard's faculty, Professor Johnson practiced law at the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House under the Obama administration. During his time with the State Department's Legal Advisor's Office, Professor Johnson advised on a wide range of international issues, including Middle Eastern, political, military, United Nations, and multilateral matters. Professor Johnson also served as Chief of Staff to the Special Coordinator for Middle East Transitions, where he oversaw an office responsible for coordinating U.S. assistance to politically transitioning countries in the Middle East and North Africa after the Arab Spring. Professor Johnson continues to work in politically transitioning states, including his recent work in supporting the Sudan peace process as a senior legal advisor with the Public International Law and Policy Group. He is a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School. Professor Johnson, we're glad you're here today. It's my great pleasure to be here, Lisa and Yvette. Thanks for having me. So we'd like to start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start, I hear, from musicals from my childhood. So can you uh, give us a brief overview of Sudan, Professor Johnson, and just a little bit of history to set the table? Absolutely. Thanks, Yvette. I think it's a good place to start at the very beginning. It's always a good place to start, right? Well, the first thing I think it's important to recognize about Sudan is what a large and diverse country it is and how the size and diversity of Sudan, and in particular, the legacy of colonialism, has influenced the challenges that we see in Sudan today. Prior to the 2011 partition of Sudan and South Sudan, Sudan was actually the 10th largest country on the planet. Geographically, Sudan historically was approximately the size of all of continental Western Europe by comparison. The pre-partition Sudan comprised 597 tribes and sub-tribes, which spoke 137 languages. It's also important to remember that Sudan is also very diverse uh, in terms of religion. The people that reside in historic Sudan practice Islam, Christianity, and a wide range of indigenous African religions. 
It's also important to realize that there are a number of racial and ethnic identities that comprise Sudan, but most of the individuals in Sudan loosely identify as, as either African or Arab. And so it's important to remember when we look back at the history of Sudan and how the, the modern country was formed, that prior to colonialism, there were a number of ancient African kingdoms. And those kingdoms that currently form the area of modern Sudan actually came under uh, Egyptian control in the early 19th century. And later in that century, after the region was invaded by the British, the British actually entered into a joint agreement with Egypt to rule the territory known as Sudan. And so that agreement entered into in 1899 and extended until 1956, when Sudan gained independence from both uh, Britain and Egypt. And following Sudan's independence in 1956, despite some very short periods of democratic rule, the government in, in Khartoum has primarily been one that's largely authoritarian. And the central government in Khartoum since independence has been marked in particular by significant political instability, frequent military coups. And this authoritarian government, this central government in Khartoum, also exacerbated many of the ethnic, tribal, religious, and other divisions that I talked about within the country. Because of the significant racial, tribal, and religious diversity that I talked about, there was often competition over scarce resources, and that competition was exacerbated by actions taken within the capital. And so over the time, what we see since Sudan has become independent is a constant state of violent internal conflict between the various regions of Sudan and the ruling elite in the capital. One of the most longstanding and deadly of these conflicts has been the conflict with the southern region, uh, which resulted in partition. But also there has been quite a long conflict between the central government and Darfur. And more recently in the 21st century, a significant conflict between the central government and the region known as the two areas, which comprises the, the region of the Blue Nile and the region of South Kordofan. Something else that I just want to talk about to lay some of the history is that the central government really in the midst of these conflicts with different regions outside of the central part of Sudan, used its military and allied militias to commit absolutely horrific crimes against humanity and war crimes against civilians within the country. In Darfur in particular, the U.S. Department of State determined that genocide had occurred. As a result of this violent armed state of conflict with the central government, in many of the regions, political armed movements evolved, right? And as a result of these political armed movements, Sudan really has been in a state of significant conflict throughout its independence period. And there have been various attempts by the international community, both international groups like the United Nations, as well as regional groups and states like the United States and various parties in the European Union that have pushed the government in Khartoum over the last several decades to enter into peace processes with these various political armed movements. One of the most well-renowned agreements that came out of these negotiations was the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement between Khartoum and Southern Sudan. And that actually was the precursor to South Sudan's independence referendum in 2011 uh, that led to the partition of Sudan 
and the formation of the new country of South Sudan. That's a helpful background, and I think it's a background most people probably aren't familiar with. As Americans, we sometimes turn inward, and so it's not always apparent why a place like Sudan is strategically important. Tell us why Americans should take an interest in Sudan. Yes, interesting. Interestingly enough, you know, there is a connection between the United States and Sudan, at least in terms of how we have been impacted that might not be apparent to a lot of Americans. So I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But but before I talk about that uh, strategic interest and history, I want to note that I think for many Americans, we, we should have an interest in what is happening in Sudan because, you know, from a moral and human rights perspective, uh, many Americans hope to see the values that we hold dear in our own country like democracy, like human and civil rights, like freedoms and the rule of law, we want to see those celebrated in other parts of the planet, right? We, we know that this week on Thursday and Friday, President Biden is hosting a summit of democracies, right? Focused on the importance of strengthening democracy and, and all of the benefits that democracy brings to the citizens in a democracy. And, and I think we should be taking that same perspective with regard to what's happening in Sudan, a strong democratic Sudan that protects human rights, benefits its people. Now, from the perspective of U.S. strategic interests, right, I think it's important for us to also realize that Sudan can, because of where it's placed strategically, kind of between, you know, what's loosely referred to as the, the Arab and African worlds, Sudan's location is of prime importance to us, particularly from the perspective of counterterrorism operations, right? Sudan really can be a strong partner for the United States in responding to counterterror threats in the region. But on the contrary, right, if Sudan does not evolve democratically and respect human rights, Sudan can also become a threat to the United States. So you mentioned that there was a determination of genocide with respect to Sudan coming from the State Department. And we're just talking about like the strategic interest that the United States has in Sudan. What was the practical effect of that determination? Did we change our posture in some way? It's been controversial in atrocities prevention circles about whether or not a determination of genocide means anything. And, and I think it's really interesting in the context of your comments about moral leadership. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great question. I think, well, the determination of genocide was made by uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell during the Bush administration. And the determination was generally supported on you know bipartisan basis. Congress on a bipartisan basis uh, seemed to support the determination that had been made by the Secretary of State after he had commissioned a study to explore what was actually happening on the ground. In terms of the practical effect that the determination had, you know, it was interesting. We, we, we know historically that under President Bush, the U.S. government had actually withdrawn the signature that the, the Clinton administration had made uh, to the Rome Treaty. The Bush administration very publicly uh, withdrew that signature and made it clear uh, that the U.S. had no intention of ratifying the Rome Statute. And so at the time, which in, you know, this was the early uh, 21st century, there was concern that the U.S. government, you know, was going to not really be that supportive of the ICC. And following the genocide determination, the U.S. government actually chose within the U.N. Security Council 
uh, not to object to a determination made by the Security Council to refer to the ICC the question of whether crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes were being committed in Sudan. And I can't you know, overstate how significant that was, right? So although the U.S. government was not the largest supporter of the ICC, that action was really a practical acknowledgement by the U.S. that there weren't a lot of levers, right, that had not yet been exercised that could be used to respond to this genocide determination, but an ICC investigation certainly was one of those levers. We'll talk a bit more about historic actions the U.S. government had taken against the government of Khartoum because of its support for terrorism, but that determination of genocide directly led to the U.S. allowing this ICC investigation to move forward. Something that is distinct but can be related in terms of unstable governments and societies, Sudan had a major role in international terrorism historically, correct? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes, you know, absolutely. That's correct. After Omar Bashir took control of the country in a military coup in 1989, once he took control of the government, uh, he pursued an agenda that focused on the expansion of an extreme form of Islamism uh, within the country that saw really the really repressive enforcement of harsh punishments under Sharia law domestically. You know, as I mentioned before, he also engaged in escalating the violent internal conflicts that existed within Sudan. But he also opened Sudan's borders to violent terrorist groups, including uh, Osama bin Laden the head of Al-Qaeda. And a year after moving to Sudan, bin Laden staged his first attack on the World Trade Center in New York. Our listeners may recall that that first attack was a 1993 truck bomb attack at the World Trade Center that ultimately killed six people. And following that attack, the United States placed Sudan on the state sponsors of terrorism list and imposed sanctions on Sudan. And it really wasn't until very recently, really this past year, that many of those sanctions were lifted after Bashir had been removed from office and after Sudan had gone through a peace process. I also should note that even after the United States had placed Sudan on the state sponsors of terrorism list and had imposed sanctions, um, Sudan was still implicated under the Bashir regime in al-Qaeda's 1998 bombing of the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, and the 2000 bombing of a U.S. naval ship off the coast of Yemen. Yeah, I hope some of our listeners remember that. And if not, they really should go look back because I think those were the things that predated 9-11, but also sort of sounded the beginning, the drumbeat that led up to our massive legal reforms and reaction to terrorism that followed largely in 2001, but um, continued on through 2003, including an entire overhaul of the federal government. Let's pop to right now. Bashir is gone, but he is presently charged before the International Criminal Court, which we probably will refer to throughout this podcast as simply the ICC. Could you talk to us a little bit about those charges and what the current posture of that case is to the extent you're tracking? Yeah, so, you know, this actually links back to our earlier discussion about the determination by the United States that a genocide was occurring in Darfur, right? So as I noted before that 
when Bashir came into power following his coup, you know, in addition to, as I noted, opening Sudan's borders to international terrorists like Osama bin Laden, Bashir was also extremely repressive towards the Sunnis people, right? So in Darfur, Bashir ordered a systematic campaign of violence against people in the Darfuri region uh, that had organized, right, in reaction to many of his repressive policies, right? His forced Islamatization and his forced um, Arabization campaign in the Darfur region, as well as years of repression of that region, had led to the formation of kind of armed political movements against the central government. And so, you know, when Bashir came into power, he not only ramped up his Islamization and Arabization campaigns, he also directed his military forces and allied uh, militia groups called the Janjaweed to go into the Darfur region and to begin to attack these various kind of indigenous African groups that had uh, organized in response to the central uh, government. And so the, the motivations uh, of Bashir, you know, why he kind of began this mass campaign of committing atrocities against Darfur are many, right? Uh, as I mentioned, you know, he had this Islamization, uh, Arabization campaign, um, but he also, you know, was imposing Sharia in a very harsh manner throughout the country. You know, there were instances where there were, you know, these very horrific public hangings and killings that were implemented uh, not long after he came into office, right? And kind of there was this mass exodus of um, many of the educated populace of Sudan um, left the country when this repression started. And specifically within Darfur, right, there was interest from the Bashir regime in kind of taking territory from African groups and giving that territory to Arab groups who he had invited into the country as part of his Arabization campaign. Um, he also wanted to take control of local natural resources um, and to suppress the local rebellion that had formed against him. And so based upon these motivations and others, he had no qualms about having his military forces and the, the allied Janjaweed militia to commit horrific acts of violence, killing, rape, destruction on a mass scale. Um, there are some estimates that between 2003 to 2010, this campaign by Bashir led to the death of, you know, anywhere from 300,000 to more than half a million people in the Darfur region. And so as a result of these actions, as I mentioned before, the State Department um, had this genocide determination. And as I also mentioned, the State Department allowed the Security Council to, or the U.S. government specifically, allowed the Security Council to refer to the ICC an investigation of what was happening in Darfur. And one of the things that the ICC did was in 2008, the ICC issued an arrest warrant for Bashir for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And then in 2010, um, the ICC expanded that arrest warrant to include the crime of genocide. So notwithstanding this ICC arrest warrant issued against Bashir, Bashir did remain free, right, after that first 2008 arrest warrant. And he continued to travel as a head of state throughout the region. And it really was only after he was toppled from power in 2019 and a civilian transition government was installed 
that there was some discussion about finally rendering Bashir to the ICC. And in fact, this past August, the current ICC prosecutor, Kareem Khan, met with Sudanese transition government officials. And following those meetings, um, Sudan's foreign minister announced that an agreement had been reached and that Bashir would be handed over to the ICC along with other officials who had committed atrocities in Darfur. And that was actually very momentous. I don't think that could have been anticipated just a few years earlier. That was quite a moment in sort of the history of the ICC. The United States and you personally actually had a pivotal role in sort of the treaty with Sudan. Um, You were there. And I'd like to draw you out a little bit about that to the extent you can discuss it. What were the issues that were sought to be resolved by the treaty and who are the parties? So this is um, referring to a recent peace agreement. So as I had mentioned a little bit earlier in our discussion, in 2005, Sudan, uh, the central government in Sudan and the southern region government entered into the comprehensive peace agreement that ultimately led to the partition of Sudan and South Sudan. So that somewhat resolved the ongoing conflict, civil conflict between the central government and the southern region of Sudan. But as I mentioned before, there still were several other conflicts, right? Namely, the conflict in Darfur and also uh, a very violent conflict that evolved a little bit later in the 21st century between the central government and the regions of South Kordofan and the Blue Nile. And so there were still a number of very violent internal conflicts taking place within Sudan, even after the partition of Sudan and South Sudan. And there were armed movements that had formed, and these armed movements eventually formed a coalition, right? And this coalition had a kind of a political leadership. And so in 2019, when Omar Bashir was toppled from power, by a popular revolution um, of the the Sudanese people, a civilian-led transitional government was installed. And so the installation of the civilian-led transitional government opened up a lot of space for the negotiation of a peace agreement intended to resolve many of the longstanding conflicts that still existed between the various regions of Sudan and the central government, and also opened up the space for a democratic transition process to move forward, of which the peace process was an important part. And so the parties to what eventually uh, was called the Juba Peace Agreement, um, because it was negotiated in Juba, South Sudan, were really this coalition of the political leadership of these historic armed movements in the various regions of Sudan and the new central government in Sudan, this civilian-led transition government. The peace process, right, that led to the Juba peace agreement was about a year-long process, right? It began in the fall of 2019 and ultimately concluded in October of 2020. The United States um, and several other uh, states supported the peace process, right, as observers, and they really backed the Sudanese and South Sudanese government in in moving ahead with this process, as did, you know, many other states. But the process was really African-led, right? So the process was mediated 
by the government of South Sudan in Juba, right? The South, South Sudan's capital, which is why it's called the Juba Peace Agreement. And my personal engagement in the process was, you know, I had the opportunity to participate in the process as a member of an international NGO, a global pro bono law firm called the Public International Law Policy Group. And so I was a member of a team of lawyers from the Public International Law and Policy Group that provided legal and technical advice to the process, right? And as I noted, the process took about a year. It was a comprehensive multi-track peace agreement with specific arrangements between uh, the central government and representatives of these armed movements from the regions uh, that essentially provided for, you know, the laying down of arms, right? Um, But on the condition that several issues were resolved, right? Issues involving, you know, accountability for past atrocities, um, issues involving representation in the new government, issues related to the protection of human rights, uh, issues around wealth sharing, natural resources, reparations. So it was quite a comprehensive agreement. But what was wonderful about the agreement is that if fully implemented, it would help to end nearly all of the remaining internal civil conflicts in Sudan and play a really important part in laying the groundwork for a peaceful democratic transition in Sudan. Well, I think that segues nicely into my next question, which is what is the future of Sudan? You know, Professor Johnson, you've really laid out in succinct and short order um, the history of a very tumultuous region with a lot of problems, to to put it mildly. Going forward, we've resolved, we've got these different agreements that are active, but, you know, in the international space, like being an international lawyer, you know, those agreements don't necessarily get played out in reality. What do you anticipate is, is going to be the future of Sudan? Well, you know, I would, like many uh, supporters of Sudan and certainly supporters of a peaceful democratic Sudan that uh, respects human rights and the rule of law, you know, I really do believe that the Juba peace agreement and the broader peace process uh, and the broader democratic transition process that the Sudanese people have pushed for, that it has opened up space to achieve that objective of a democratic Sudan that protects human rights and the rule of law. But as we all know, and those of us that work in this space know, democratic transitions and political transitions, you know, have periods of revanche, right? Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. And one of those steps back, unfortunately, occurred um, this past month. On October 29th of this past year, General Abdel Fattah al-Buran, Sudan's top general, seized control of the civilian-led government and detained the civilian prime minister, uh, Hamduk, and other civilian members of the transition government. The leaders of this military coup fired any officials of the transition government that did not support their power grab. And the timing of this coup was both significant and unfortunate, right? It was significant because General Burhan and the military officials who had been part of the transition government, right, which had been a mix of civilian and military officials, were actually set to give full control of the government to civilian authorities, right, this month. And before they turned over power, right, this, this coup was undertaken. Um, it's also, you know, important date because October 2021 
was the one-year anniversary of the signing of the Juba Peace Agreement. And in that intervening year, right, many things had taken place, right? There were many members of the, you know, armed coalition that had signed the agreement that had actually um, started to take positions in government as per the agreement, right? And there were measures in the agreement that had been implemented over the course of that past year. And so there was a lot of concern that because of this coup, the peace process and the democratic transition would be thwarted. And so just like we saw in 2019, when the Sudanese people took to the streets um, and engaged in sustained protests that ultimately led to the fall of Omar Bashir, right, the people have taken back to the street. And many people in Sudan and many in the international community really want to see the democratic and political transition placed back on track. There was, you know, some movement, the political protests led to an arrangement that was entered into at the end of November, where Burhan and Hamduk, the prime minister, entered into an arrangement where they agreed to share power. However, interestingly enough, that arrangement has not yet satisfied the Sudanese street, right? There are many in the public who are still protesting and still demanding that all of the military officials within the government be removed from government and that there be a full and exclusive civilian-led government, civilian rule. Some other things that have happened since the coup, um, the African Union has suspended Sudan's membership, and the United Nations Secretary General uh, recently encouraged the military to, uh, the military specifically, Burhan, right, who committed the coup, the Secretary General has encouraged them to support the constitutional declaration that had been entered into following Bashir's removal um, and to really create a pathway to free and fair elections and civilian democratic rule. So right now, um, all of us that are watching the situation in Sudan are really, you know, hoping that pressure both domestically and internationally will help to get the democratic transition back on track so that the, the dreams of the Sudanese people can be realized. I think this this situation is definitely being watched. It's it's covered a lot less, I know, in the United States press. BBC seems to have uh, a little bit more thorough coverage occurring, but it does seem to change day to day. And it's important to remember, obviously, that this is in the horn, near the Horn of Africa as well, which is increasingly unstable due to the conflict in Ethiopia. Professor Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you have you back in the future and we'll keep a close eye on events in Africa since they do impact the United States and global security. I couldn't agree and, more, Lisa. It's been my great pleasure to speak with you and Yvette, and I look forward to joining you again in the future. I, I think you're gonna have to come back because the way we're leaving things, it, it's on a knife's edge, all, all of the things that are kind of accumulating and the transitions, I think we will be seeing you soon. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to everyone listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law updates every week, except for the next two weeks. We're going to be taking our holiday break over Christmas and New Year's, but we look forward to returning on January 6th with another great podcast. We never take your attention for granted, so we're glad that you were here. If you have topics you want us to cover next year or feedback you'd like to give us, you can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. 
And let me remind you, for those of you who are gluttons for punishment, if you want to go back and listen to any podcasts on topics as diverse as space law, what's happening in Ethiopia, the implication of climate on national security, you know, we have multiple podcasts on all of these topics. So feel free to go back to the website where they're posted, which is AmericanBar.org backslash Nat Security. And you can find them all there. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in 2022. We wish you and your family and those near and dear good times together. Happy holidays and the very best wishes for the new year. We will see you there. And before we completely disappear, we always have to say this. Don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, meaning me, the vet, we're here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.